Welcome to the Teach Me Lit podcast. I'm Sophie Tuvey and I love talking about books and helping you to revise for English literature and go deeper in the texts you're studying. In this podcast, I'm just going to talk through a couple of Larkin's poems here, uh, The Large Cool Store, Sunny Pristatin and Essential Beauty. So with Larkin's here, it, it begins the collection of the Wits and Weddings and it takes place on a train journey as the persona travels uh, through this landscape from a really urban industrial area um, finally out to the outskirts, um, out to the wilderness. Now, it, many people have commented on Larkin using a detached observer that the persona is on the train and therefore by being on the train separated from the world around him. And what the persona describes for us um, is a detailed depiction of the world around him, but that he himself is not really part of. The description of um, the environment from the industrial shadows, the traffic, um, the workmen um, and the town and the residents doesn't immediately seem to be negative. Um, Larkin does seem to have a tone in the second stanza of criticising a post-war consumerist society. He mentions um, the the plate glass swing doors um, that open up to allow people to just get what he calls their desires, cheap suits, red kitchenware, sharp shoes, iced lollies, electric mixers, toasters, washers, dryers. So there's this massive list of products that really highlight the consumerism um, of people in this uh, post-war 1960s era when people finally had more uh, disposable income to spend on such products. Um, Stanza 3 opens with this kind of indictment, a cut price crowd, urban yet simple, which sounds you know, like the persona is separate him himself from these people who are falling for materialism and um, their lives are all about acquiring more and more products and living this very urban lifestyle. But rather than being an entirely negative poem, it does seem that as the persona journeys on and out beyond the town, um, begins to become into more of a pastoral countryside scene um, he talks about how the isolate villages um, where removed lives loneliness clarifies um, and to me the loneliness there doesn't seem to be a negative thing actually it seems to be something that the persona desires for himself the stanza break there's interesting that where removed lives and the stanza break occurs here so that loneliness is the first word of the final stanza and I think as a concept loneliness is a key concept for the persona um, the loneliness of modern life that perhaps we are less of a community than we used to be um, as we've become more self-absorbed and more concerned with um, our own personal acquisitions um, the speaker seems to think that loneliness offers a clarity of thought that in the busyness of life we just don't get. Um, and then he goes on to say, here, silence stands like heat. 
And there's a sense in which that reflective silence is something the persona has been desiring and actually seeking, deliberately moving away from the industrial urban environment in order to have that clarity of thought. Finally, the poem ends with this image of here is unfenced existence facing the sun and talkative out of reach. And there is that sense, which we often see in Larkin's poems, of, of dissatisfaction, that, that what he wants is, is constantly out of reach. Um, and I think it reflects the, the fact that here is a paradox. You know, even as we try to specify where here is, we've already moved past it because the train is moving and it's a metaphorical journey and so perhaps as soon as the persona tries to find that place of reflection it eludes him and becomes out of reach again um or you could read it in a sense of finally at the end of the poem he he gets to that place of reflection um and he does achieve that which he's been looking for the the whole poem so you can read it in in different ways um and whether the persona is satisfied at the end of the poem or not you can definitely say that the persona doesn't feel like he belongs in much of the society that he describes um but in this desire for reflection and unfenced existence maybe the persona is desiring a life free from all the trappings of materialism that the poem has described now that leads us nicely into looking at the large cool store because um, obviously, for for Larkin in the 1960s, these um, much larger um, department stores were um, becoming a bit of a phenomenon in the post-war culture. Um, this the idea of the supermarket, the idea of you know larger stores where you could purchase a much greater range of products. Um, was very much a, a post-war concept and you know before the war and during the war people would be queuing up at the local butcher and baker and um, and grocer and and now people's spending habits and everything was beginning to change very rapidly so Larkin's poem The Large Cool Store um, just describes this uh, store which seems really devoid of personality you know large cool kind of um generic kind of phrases and this sells cheap clothes and i think in that first word you get the sense of the persona's sort of snobbery and sense that they're looking down at this kind of store as being you know inferior or somehow beneath them they're set out in simple sizes plainly her knitwear, summer casuals, hose in browns and greys, maroon and navy, conjures the weekday world. So he's describing the kind of working uh, uniform style office wear of people. Um, and then he goes on to say of, of those who leave at dawn, low terraced houses timed for factory yard and sites. So he's specifically focusing on working class people. Um, who who live these lives that are very much, um, you know, the routine is fixed and um, the the hours are fixed and the clothing is in these dull colours, browns, greys, maroon, navy, to reflect this lack of vibrancy, individuality and freedom in their lives. But then in the second stanza, he shifts to contrast 
for heaps of shirts and trousers with the stands of modes for night um and you know the description there is kind of ironic it's meant to sound sophisticated um these are perhaps the more expensive items the more exciting items that um that ladies would wear out to socialize um and it's got the description of the colors in stanza three lemon sapphire moss green rose and obviously uh, there's a juxtaposition there of natural terms with the fact that they're synthetic um fabrics so the very next line says bry nylon um baby dolls and shorties so this sort of attempt to um market products as being something that they aren't um it's not really a, a lemon yellow you know it's it's a it's a manufactured fabric color um the the female um clothes seem to almost personify the women themselves so it says that the baby dolls and shorties flounce in clusters much like maybe women would would flounce around in groups um out on the town as well um, and then the persona becomes more reflective. To suppose they share that world, to think their sort is matched by something in it, shows how separate and unearthly love is or women are. Um, and so we wonder if perhaps the clothes become a metaphor for sexual relationships, that just like the clothes go out of fashion quickly and are very re- easily replaceable, um, so the persona views women as um, you know, easily replaceable and... Um, perhaps even viewing the women objectively a bit like a product, just like the large cool store itself. Now this links with uh, Sunny Prostatin because in this poem you've got um, this poster that's put up um, on a kind of billboard of this um, provocative image of a of a girl and um, with a very sexualized description of her thighs and her breast lifting arms um, and there's this sense of this world on this poster that is basically this ideal world of advertising um, it's a kind of delusion prostatin is not a particularly exotic um, holiday destination in north wales um, it's almost certainly very rarely sunny um, as the title would suggest. So there's this idea in which the poem, the, um, the poster invites people to um, desire something which, you know, is a bit of an intangible um, illusion. And the the girl is this kind of sexual object because she's, you know, mercilessly being exploited in this advert to sell the product, to sell the holiday to Pristatin. And then, of course, it's interesting of what what happens to the poster. Um, it says in stanza two, she was slapped up one day in March, a couple of weeks and her face was snaggled toothed. And of course, the, the poster gets graffitied um, in a, an overtly sexualized way. In some ways, it feels like it gets kind of um, shockingly violent the way it's destroyed from first of all being um, graffitied with a pen and then someone used a knife um, to stab right through um, the moustache lips of her smile. And in the third stanza it says, she was too good for this life. And you wonder if this kind of female object is just this object of, of sexual violence. Um, is is the violence of the way that the post is treated something that's endemic to our society? Um, or is it the fact that 
the people looking at the poster feel a sense of anger that you know this lifestyle of holidays and beautiful girls is just beyond them and and the aggression they display in their treatment of the poster is actually um symbolic of their aggression of the whole world of advertising that promises them something which they just is unattainable for them so the image of the girl becomes a prey but because it's not an actual real image we're not sure whether you know the girl is an object of violence or the image itself and the idealization um there's a kind of implicit deprivation in the poem of the people who have graffitied it um and even though it's not made completely explicit um it does suggest either the way that women are treated as sexual objects or just generally the gap between the idealized world of advertising and then the real world of the working class um this leads really on to essential beauty which is very much about this class divide as well as about advertising. Um, it talks about how um, the billboards are, are put up in, in so many streets and they're absolutely huge. They, they block the ends of the streets off. Um, and um, apparently in the kind of bombed areas, they actually use billboards to cover up holes in the road or the walls rather than actually rebuilding them properly. So these massive... Um, billboards screen off um rubble and decay and destruction and larkin sees that as a bit of a metaphor for how the billboards are screening off the less savory um aspects of life so on the billboards you see beautiful images um but they they don't really depict uh, reality so advertising blocks the bleak reality of life because we all want to escape this um the reality of our own dull mundane existences um or the reality of our mortality and um, it's interesting in stanza one the billboards screen graves with custard so they hide the cemetery um with this image of of a product of custard and there's a kind of irony here of you know you go from uh, the sublime to the t- ridiculous as it were you go from this concept of death and you know, uh, the severity of that to a product like custard. Um, and then it says that it covers the slums with praise. And with the word slum, it immediately brings this sense of, you know, working class, lower class people who are living lives of poverty. And there's that uncomfortable juxtaposition of the slums with the, the praise of motor oil and cuts of salmon. Of course, th- those kind of people in the slums wouldn't be able to afford cars. They wouldn't be able to afford cuts of salmon either. And there's this kind of discrepancy um, between what the adverts are portraying and the reality of the lives of the people who are having to watch them all the time. It says that they're sharply pictured groves of how life should be. And the word grove is has kind of got religious connotations, like the kind of um, shrines that or groves where you used to have religious statues. And it's as if materialism is the new religion. Um, high above the gutter, a silver knife sinks into golden butter. And I just love the bathos of that rhyme. It's kind of comic and, um, you know, that these kind of idealised domestic images, but above the gutter where you know there's so much mess and dirt and where where real life is happening Uh, it says a glass of milk stands uh, in a meadow 
Uh, and you got this sense of like the countryside being depicted in this very urban, dirty, bombed town and well-balanced families in fine midsummer weather owe their smiles, their cars, even their youth to that small cube each hand stretches towards. And that's a reference to the OXO cube, um, this kind of idealised family uh, and the sense of, you know, if you buy this product, this is the kind of life you're going to have. These and the deep armchairs aligned to cups at bedtime, radiant bars, gas or electric, quarter profile cats by zippers on warm mats, reflect none of the rained on streets and squares. They dominate outdoors. So it's a sense in which the, the billboards are almost personified as as dominating this outdoor environment. Um, and actually um, they become something that kind of judges people for what they don't have. Um, they rise serenely to proclaim pure crust, uh, pure foam, pure coldness to our live imperfect eyes that stare beyond this world. The fact is that adverts create and thrive on dissatisfaction and social envy. They want to make us jealous if other people have got these products. They want to make us spend our money and buy them. And I think uh, Larkin seems to be, you know, really critical of this kind of consumerist society. Um, fundamentally, the apparent reality of adverts quickly dissolves. You know, that it's an illusion that can't possibly be uh, sustained. And I think this is where the title comes in, Essential Beauty. Um, Plato argued that to attain to wisdom and beauty, we have to see through it to the essential reality of things. And I think Larkin's really parodying this idea because rather than finding any real beauty or real reality, and um, everything just dissolves and, and becomes nothing. And the second stanza really focuses on those um, real images of the dark rafted pubs, the white clothed ones from tennis clubs, the boy puking his heart out in the gents. Is he drinking in just in response to just disappointment with how his life has worked out? It's a kind of pitiful image. And there's a kind of pathos of the pensioner paying a halfpenny more for granny grave clothes tea. You know, what an ironic name Larkin's chosen for this this brand here, again reminding us of mortality and death. And dying smokers sense walking towards them through some dappled park, as if on water, that unfocused she, no match lit up. The sense in, in smoking adverts, you have these beautiful women who've never smoked. And how um, the pathos of the dying smokers, they are dying of lung cancer. And yet the adverts are promising them this um, immortality. Um, it, it describes the woman in the advert walking towards them as if on water. So almost kind of Christ-like, God-like, but it's all phony. It's all an illusion. She can't offer them immortality. Um, and of course, it says smiling and recognising and going dark. That sense, that ominous sense of oncoming um, death. So advertising shows us a distorted image of our own self, um, but it also shows up the social inequality that Larkin feels so strongly about. If you've enjoyed this podcast and found it helpful, please hit subscribe and share it with a friend. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter. Just search for Teach Me Lit. I'm always open to requests, so if you want me to talk about a text you're studying, get in touch. Thank you for listening. See you next time on the Teach Me Lit podcast.